Let's just take a minute in our own hearts and contemplate the glory of what God has done. I mean, we're looking at these early chapters of Genesis. We're thinking about all the way back to the beginning of creation. And somehow God in His mercy has walked with humanity through all this time. It's so much greater than just our own lives, than just the the short amount of years that each one of us here has lived, or in the case of our Zoom friends over there, the long amount of years you've lived, but in the scope of reality, it's so small. It's a mist. And God, in His infinite mercy, has walked through all the generations of humans. And He stood by to offer them mercy and kindness and goodness. And thank God we praise a God who is the judge of all the earth. He's not content to let evil go unpunished. But we know He's full of mercy. If he was not full of mercy, there would be no hope for us. For we all would fall under condemnation. Thankfully, God has stood by humanity through all its trials, through all its troubles, through all the evil that it has done. God has walked with humanity, with humankind. To be its God... And so that in his infinite mercy, we might be his people. And that he would dwell with us. He longs to dwell with us. Let's just think about tonight the reality that the transcendent God of the universe who called everything into being cares enough about each one of us in this room to be present. Not just in this room tonight, but literally to dwell in us as the new temple of His presence. We just take a moment and in our own hearts marvel at that reality, that the God of the universe is with us. thank you again tonight that you are present here in this place and that even though our congregation is at a distance from each other right now there's those of us who are here in this room those of us who are far out in seaside those of us who may not be here tonight who are a part of our family think of Shireen in Texas and, and all of these people around us God we know that we're united because of you because of what Aaron just sung about, your spirit uniting us, dwelling in us, your presence, your very presence among us and in us and with us. Thank you for that truth. Thank you for that reality that no distance can separate the children of God for they are bound by your spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you accomplished that. 
You accomplished what was necessary for God to dwell with us. You were God dwelling with us. And you accomplished what was necessary for the Spirit to be poured out on us so that we might dwell in God's presence forever. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that it was your good will, it was your good pleasure to do these things. For you are a God who is full of kindness, full of mercy, and yet you are the judge of all the earth. And we await that day when things will be made right again. May it come soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, on to Genesis 4. We read the, uh, the end of Genesis 3 last week. That We read the whole chapter, but we read the kind of tragic end uh, of Genesis 3 where humanity was cast from the garden and that they, they were sent out, they were driven out uh, to be out of the Lord's presence. What Adam and Eve had was perfect presence. They could see God. When he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, they would see him. They were the only two people to know that perfect presence. right? The only two people to know that perfect Edenic presence, that, that Eden presence. And of course, at the end of three, they're cast out. And so now we start chapter four. Now we're only going to go through about halfway of chapter four. I'm stopping before we get to the genealogy. And, and then we can talk about the genealogies the week after. But for this week, we want to focus on one story. And the story at the beginning of Genesis 4 is, of course, a notorious story. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Not many stories in the Bible have had as much cultural import into Western culture as, as the story of Cain and Abel. I mean, it's it is iconic, even outside of religious communities, right? I mean, you hear that terminology used all the time. You know, this idea of kind of the sacrificial one, Abel, he was, you know, sacrificed almost, like, like he was just given up for, for no reason. And we'll see some elements in the story that really express what's going on with that. And of course, Cain, right? We already have this entrance of sin. Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit, and Cain... He just takes it to the next level, doesn't he? Because what he does is so far beyond what Adam and Eve did. Uh, it's like sin has grown exponentially in, in one generation, right? From parent to child. It's, it's magnified. So we're going to see that. This week, I titled this chapter, Brothers. Brothers. Genesis 4, 1 to 16. And we'll talk about the concept of brothers a little bit because I want to introduce you tonight to a pattern that you see in Genesis. And it's a really significant pattern in Genesis, and we'll talk about that. Um, but not yet. But I called this, this night brothers, Cain and Abel, the first brothers, and how tragic their relationship turns out. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open to Genesis 4. We'll start in verse 1. Go to verse 16 uh, before the night is through. But we'll start in verse 1. Genesis 4.1. Now the man had relations with his wife. They had sexual union. The Hebrew word there is know. They knew each other. That's why some translations will say Adam knew his wife Eve. 
And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So in two verses, we have the birth, they've grown up, and we know their occupation. I mean, this is a pretty, um, it's a terse story, right? There's not much content to it. It's, it's very compact, right? So these two verses tell us a little bit about who they are, what they grow up to be. And it's really significant because, again, as, as I hope you've learned from me in our year and a half, I guess, now of study, names are really important. Names are really important. They mean something. They're important to the story that the Bible is telling. So what first happens is Adam and Eve, they have sexual union and, they, and, they, and Eve gets pregnant, right? And like I said, that, that euphemism here is the word know in Hebrew that Adam knew his wife. And if, just like I said earlier about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Knowledge in Hebrew is an experiential term. It's about practical knowledge. It's about doing knowledge, right? It's not just uh, what we think of when we think of knowledge. We think of heady people reading a book. That's not what it's talking about. It's about talking knowledge about the experience, you know? The way you might learn by picking up a hammer and doing something, you know? That's the kind of knowledge that Hebrew has in mind. And so euphemistically, here it Adam knowing his wife means they had sexual intercourse. So she gets pregnant and she gives birth to Cain. Cain is his name. We translate that Cain. And she says, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Now, right out the gate, I'm going to have to tell you this is a notoriously difficult passage to translate. The entirety of the Cain and Abel story is really difficult Hebrew. And the reason is it's grammatically, uh, it's grammatically loose. It's not, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense just looking at the words that are there. You have to do a lot of interpretive weight to make sense of the word. This, for, this, this sentence, she says, I have gotten a man, a man child with the help of the Lord. That's a four-word sentence in Hebrew. And it consists basically of, I have gotten this word man child, which is just ish, literally a man, just man. And then a direct object marker or a preposition, which is where we get the with. And then Lord, that's all it says. So there's a lot of interpretive weight going on. And the reason is, we know uh, the naming part has to do with the I have gotten. I have gotten. Kana is the word to, to acquire or buy. Oddly enough, sometimes it's used to talk about the idea of creating. So it's either I have gotten, I have created. And the reason Cain is because of the sound. The reason that we have the name Cain. Kayan and Kana sound very similar in Hebrew. They're not necessarily related as a as a word but you can hear in the sounds kayan and kana that those are related uh, sounds so it's an it's an elusive um, naming of cain and what that means is she's saying this is the gotten one the gotten one kayan or possibly it's it's the worked one the created one right the one who's been worked um 
So that's how Cain gets his name. But what's, what's hard to understand is, one, she uses the term man, and that's not a term that's typically used of babies. <laughs> it literally means a, a man. So it's odd that she, nowhere else in the scriptures is man used to refer to a young boy, ever, it, it, or a baby. It's always about men. And so it's odd she uses this term, one, and two, it, like I said, all this stuff is at, it could just with Lord, with Lord, or possibly even just the direct object of the sentence being Lord. Now, that's a, a Hebrew thing. I don't need to get into all the linguistics of it. But what's interesting is Luther, a, a luminary as great as Luther, right, s- believes this, uh, at different points, him and some of his followers have said that this verse should actually be translated, I have gotten a man, comma, the Lord. Interesting, right? I have gotten a man, the Lord. And so the reason some of these issues are hard to understand what's going on is because, like I said, there's so much translation weight you're putting, so much interpretation weight you're putting on it. But what this is trying to say here in this interpretation is that the Lord has helped her to birth another human. As far as they knew, you know, they would bear some according to their kinds. If you understand Genesis 1, it says that all these creatures are starting bearing uh, seed according to their kind, just like the plants and trees, right? But, but it's not necessarily understood that Eve would have known exactly what this process was, what was going on with it. So she's saying, I, I've birthed a man. What's interesting about the Lutheran interpretation is that I have gotten a man, the Lord, implies something about what we read in Genesis 3. And it's a really, really tragic thought because what she's saying, if Luther is right, I have gotten a man, the Lord, is that she thinks Cain is going to fulfill Genesis 3.15. Cain is the one who will defeat the serpent. Remember what was said in Genesis 3.15? Your seed and the serpent's seed will be at odds. They will fight one another. Well, who's Eve's seed? It's Cain. And so what she's possibly saying here, according to that interpretation, is this is Messiah. Cain is Messiah, like what we thought Jesus was going to be when we get to, to the New Testament. Oh, Jesus is Messiah. Eve is thinking that here. My seed is going to defeat the serpent. What's the irony? What's the tragedy? Does Cain defeat the serpent? No, he gives in to the serpent like no one ever has. He gives in to sin and evil like no one has up to that point. He sets the trajectory of humanity on an even darker course. That's what's so tragic about what Eve is saying. It's possible she's thinking that this is the snake crusher. Cain is the one to defeat evil. And we're about to see what, what comes of that. Okay, again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Abel is an interesting name. Abel in Hebrew is the word hevel. Hevel. Hevel means a mist. It's a really interesting name. Now, 
regardless of whether Abel was actually his personal name or not, we don't know. It's possible it was. But we do know that the name Abel is telling you something about who Abel is. Literally, his name means a mist. Right? Where do you hear Hevel the most in Scripture? Actually, the place you hear Hevel the most in Scripture, if you know your Old Testament, is Ecclesiastes. Hevel, Hevel, vanity. It's all nothing. It's empty. It's meaningless. That's what Hevel means. Interestingly enough, they even use the word Hevel to describe idols. Right? What's the point of using Hevel to describe idols? They're meaningless. They're, they're empty. They're a mist. They have no power, no reality to them. But when it's talking about Abel, what's it saying? It's saying his life was here and gone like that. He's like a mist that came in and then just blew away. It's already telling you in the story, just by his name, something tragic is about to happen. Because Abel's the misty one. Here for a moment and gone the next. Okay, Abel was a keeper of flocks. He was a shepherd of flocks. He was a, a pastor, is really the word, roe. He was one who puts things to pasture. He was a shepherd of flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. Cain was a farmer. You have the shepherd and the farmer here. Interestingly enough, it's an important note to mention, who else was a tiller of the ground? Adam was. What God created Adam to do was to cultivate the land. And Cain, like his father before him, is a farmer, a tiller of the land. It's Abel who's doing something different, something new. The keeper of flocks, the shepherd. Right? Verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. His face fell. He looked to the ground, right? It's that, it's that kind of shamed, you know, just that shamed feeling. He just looks to the ground. His face has fallen. What's interesting about this, this has been hotly debated throughout church history. Why is Abel's offering regarded and Cain's not? Why is that? There's, there's a, a host of explanations. I'm going to give you the one that I think is, is right. Because it makes sense of what we've been talking about in terms of sin. Remember last week I defined sin for you. Do you remember what I said sin was? I said sin at its core is self-definition. Self-definition. Defining what is right and wrong, right? The knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Self-defining what is good and what is evil and not listening to God's interpretation is the definition of evil, right? When we think we can determine what is good and what is bad, that is sin. 
Whereas God is obviously the one who's supposed to determine what is good and what is bad. He's the one who gets to make that choice, not us. So the heart of sin is defining what is good and what is bad ourselves. Okay. Now, with that being said, in this passage, uh, one, one explanation in the New Testament, by the way, is that it says Abel offered by faith, Cain did not. That's Hebrews talking, Hebrews language. And Hebrews is interpreting this passage, saying that Abel brought a gift by faith and Cain had no faith, which I think is probably true. But that doesn't necessarily answer the question of why God had regard and no regard, at least in terms of Genesis. As a later interpretation, it may make sense of it. But Genesis does not suggest that at all. It never says Cain is the, the righteous one who brought something, in, in, or excuse me, that Abel was the righteous one who brought something good and Cain brought something bad. It just lays out what they brought with not really a comment on why one was good and why the Lord had regard and, and why he didn't have regard for the other one. Here's my question. At this point, at this point, what sin has Cain committed to have his offering not be regarded? Because traditionally, if you look at this passage, people think, well, it must be that Cain is sinful. Abel is the righteous one, and he's doing the right things, right? Because if we look at the sacrificial system, isn't this exactly what happened? The Lord, what he mostly wants, what he mostly talks about, is animal sacrifice. Bringing the sheep. And slaughtering them, the firstlings, right? The firstborn, bringing the first produce, all of those things. And, and for some reason, uh, this seems to reflect that pattern, right? This seems to reflect the knowledge of Israel about sacrifice. But here, the Lord hasn't said anything about, he never told them, hey, I want, I want animals, not, not fruit. That's what I'm feeling like. This is the first time this is mentioned. Abel decides to bring animal. Uh, Cain decides to bring fruit. So what is it that made the Lord not regard Cain? What is it? What's the secret sin that Cain has? Is there any indication? From reading the words, no, there's not. And what I would argue, what makes best sense of the passage is that Cain hasn't sinned. He has not sinned yet. Many people look at this and say, Cain has sinned and that's why the Lord had no regard for him. I don't think that's the case. I think what's going on here is God is saying what he wants and what he doesn't want. This is one of those moments you actually get to see God make a determination of good and evil. Or, or right and wrong. He says, I like this, I don't like that. I want this, I don't want that. The Lord is making a determination. How do I know that sin hasn't, or excuse me, that Cain has not sinned? We'll read the next verse. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. 
Sin's at the door. Sin's at the door. It hasn't overtaken him yet. Sin is there. It's waiting. It's like a wild animal that's ready to devour Cain. But it hasn't entered. The Lord is warning Cain about sin. Because he hasn't yet sinned. He hasn't yet sinned. He's going to. But it has not happened. So the Lord warns him about the sinfulness that could take place if he gives in in this way. If he gives in to this impulse, this desire of his to murder his brother. Already you can see that the desire is kind of planted. But he hasn't acted on it yet. He hasn't given birth to sin. He hasn't behaved. And the Lord tries to warn him from it. So in my opinion, I don't think Cain has sinned. I think in God's mysterious, inscrutable ways, him being the Lord of the universe, he made a sovereign choice. I want animal sacrifice. I don't want fruit. What is the problem? The problem for Cain is he's going to reject that definition, which is sin. The Cain is angry and his face falls because he is unwilling to accept that God preferred Abel's sacrifice. What could have Cain done? What could have Cain done? He says it. If you do well, won't your face be lifted up? Won't I take away your shame? If you do well, what does that mean? In my opinion, it's do what I said. I like this. I don't like this. He could have gone to Abel and asked for animals and said, I accept the Lord's definition of what is good and what is not. I accept it being right that he wants animal sacrifice. And so I will give an animal sacrifice just like my brother. But he didn't want to. He didn't want to. Why? Because if I had to guess, based on how I think, I, I know that I've felt before in my life, and I imagine many of you have, he probably was like, this is unfair. This is totally unfair. I am a farmer, so I brought my produce. What's wrong with that? Why can't I make that decision? You, why is his so much better than mine? That sounds very, very relatable, doesn't it? That is the heart of sin. The Lord made a determination and Cain is unwilling to accept it and unwilling to do what is necessary to get what the Lord wants to sacrifice that. He wants it to be his way. He wants it to be right what he did. But remember, the Lord had regard for Abel's and no regard for Cain's. And this falling of the face I think it's indicative of a, of a subject we've talked about several times now. And what it is, is shame, right? The fact that the Lord had regard for Abel's sacrifice means that Abel was honored before the community, right? The Lord had regard for him. That's, that's an exalting, that's, a, that's an honor term. But he had no regard for Cain. Cain wasn't honored before the community, right? And this idea of your face falling, that face falling implies shame. 
It's not that he did something wrong and he's guilty, which is how we think as Westerners. It's not, but, and that's why we interpret Cain as sinful, right? We interpret Cain early in the story as sinful because we think, oh, the Lord didn't regard what he did well, so he must have been sinful. He must be guilty of something. That's not what the passage is about. The passage is about honoring and shaming. Cain, and I actually don't know if God intends to shame Cain, Cain feels shame because his offering is not regarded by the community, or is not regarded before the Lord in front of the community, right? And the Lord tells him, listen, I know you feel ashamed. I know you're angry. I know you feel the shame, the weight of that community. But if you do well, if you do what I tell you is right, don't you think you're going to have your face lifted up? Don't you think you're going to be restored to honor? That's what getting your face lifted up means, right? You're so ashamed. Think about this just in human terms. You're so ashamed you can't even look at someone. You have to keep your eyes to the ground. And the Lord says, no, I'll come and lift your chin. I'll lift your face and look at you. That's being restored to honor, right? That's the, that's the terminology. Your face fell, you're having your face lifted to look eye to eye. You're being honored. He says, if you do what's right, aren't I going to come and lift your face? You'll be honored just like your brother. But if you don't, sin's waiting for you. And it wants to devour you, but you have to conquer it. You must rule over it. Remember those words from the punishment for Eve, Right? Those same words, desire, rule over, master. That's coming from Genesis 3. Sin wants to, to, to take over you, but don't let it. Rule over it, dominate it, it instead, Cain. And of course, this story never records what Cain's response is, does it? It never records what, if anything, Cain says back to God after this. Maybe, yeah, yeah, okay, God, you're right. But clearly he's let something fester in his heart. Because the very next verse, the very next verse, what does he do? Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. What a compact sentence to talk about the horror of murder. The horror of a human taking the life of another human. And, and the scriptures, they, they describe it in just like, in mere words, right? There's not a lot of poetic flourish or any, it's just, this is the awful reality of what Cain did. He rose up and he killed his brother when they were in the field. Away from anyone who could help him, he rose up and he murdered him. He killed him. Brothers, brothers, is there anything in the scriptures that is more poignant, more beautiful, more connected, more holy when brothers dwell in, in life and in goodness together? And is there anything in the scriptures that is more destructive, more hateful, more filled with venom and evil than when brothers live at odds. This theme is going to come up in Genesis, and that's why I wanted to tell you it. 
as we think about Cain and Abel that set the example for brothers in Genesis. This story, this this pattern will play out again and again and again. Right? This is not the only pair of brothers or set of brothers in the in the book of Genesis. It shows up over and over and over. What happens with Cain and Abel is going to happen with Isaac and Ishmael. What happens with Isaac and Ishmael is going to happen with Jacob and Esau. What happens with Jacob and Esau is going to happen with Joseph and his brothers. There's always this murderous intent, right? Isaac and Ishmael. It's a little lesson because all you hear about in terms of Isaac and Ishmael is that Ishmael mocks Isaac. It says Ishmael is probably a teenager when Isaac is a little boy and he's, he teases him, he mocks him. And then you get to Jacob and Esau and remember Jacob the deceiver, he steals Esau's blessing. And what does he think? And what, At least according to the text, what is Esau's intention? It's to murder Jacob. So Jacob runs, right? He runs and he goes to, to his family back, in his, back away from the land of Israel. And when he gets there, he meets his, his mother's brother, right? He meets his, his family, his extended family. But the reason he leaves is to avoid being killed. And even when he comes back home, what does he think? It says, Esau's coming with 300 men to meet you. And Jacob thinks what? He's coming to to finish the job he never got to do. He's going to kill me. And when you get to Joseph, Joseph the dreamer, right? They use that term as a term of hate. He's the dreamer. What do they want to do? They want to kill him, throw him in a pit. And, and only because, only because Judah says, hey, why kill him? Why not make some money off of him? Let's sell him as a slave. Is the reason the brothers do not kill him. Right? They, they say, hey, let's sell him. Make some money off of him. That's the only reason they don't kill their youngest brother, Joseph. It's a tragic reality. But there's another pattern you have to realize too, and it plays in all these same stories. All of these stories, the same thing plays out. And that is this, there is the preference by the Lord for whatever reason, his elected purpose, he chooses the younger brother. It's unique and it's significant because we know in this culture, there's a concept called primogenitor. And what that means is the firstborn is the favored one. Right? The firstborn is, and we can still see some semblance of it, in, even in our cultures, right? Where they're the responsible one, right? They're the one who's going to take care of the family if anything happens, you know? They're the firstborn, right? In this culture, it's even greater, right? The firstborn is the one who gets the massive inheritance, gets the vast majority of it. His job is to become the new patriarch. If anything were to happen to dad, the firstborn is the one who takes over and takes care of mom, takes care of everyone. That's the firstborn's role. And some reason, God, in his great sovereignty, chooses the younger brother in Genesis consistently. Right? He, look at Cain and Abel. 
Who's the favored one? At least, who does it appear to be? It's Abel, the younger brother. When we go to Isaac and Ishmael, who's the chosen one? Isaac, the child of promise, the younger brother. When we get to Jacob and Esau, who's the chosen one? Jacob, the younger brother. And when we get to Joseph, who's the one that the Lord is with? It's Joseph, the younger brother. This is a consistent pattern. The Lord is breaking the norm of the culture and choosing the youngest. Right? It kind of sheds new light on David too, doesn't it? David, the, the youngest, the eighth brother. This pattern shows up. What's interesting about it is that it also may, now this is more speculative, it also may point back to creation. Where we don't think in these terms usually, but it's possible that this whole story with the serpent is a reflection of the older brother, younger brother dynamic. Who was created first? The animals. Who was created last? The humans. And the Lord, in His mysterious ways, chooses humanity, and the serpent, as the older brother is murderous in his intent toward the younger brother. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a new way to think about that story. The older brother is the one with murderous intent and the younger brother is the chosen one. Fascinating to me. Fascinating way to interpret that story. But here it is. Brother murdering brother. The first, the first human ever born... <laughs> Cain, and he's a murderer. How far have we fallen in this one moment from eating the fruit that God commanded us not to eat to literally the worst sin that humans can do? There is no sin as grave, no sin as significant biblically as the crime of taking another person's life. And in one one parent-to-child cycle, we go from disobeying a command to the ultimate sin of murder, the ultimate human sin that you can commit on another human. Cain murders. And not just some random person. It's not like he just decided, oh, I want to kill someone. It's, this. it's his own brother. It's his own brother. The darkness of the human heart revealed for us to see. But as we go through these last verses, I want you to think about how closely this story mirrors Genesis 3. It mirrors Genesis 3. Just like Genesis 3, the Lord shows up. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he says, Where are you, Adam? Where are you? He's doing the same thing to Cain. This is God's mercy to him. Just like I told you in, in Genesis 3, it's not like God is, is totally perplexed about where Adam is. It's not like he hasn't figured it out. He's inviting Adam to confession. He does the same thing here. The Lord knows what has happened, and we'll see in a minute that that's true, that we already know the Lord knows. He says he already knew. But here he's inviting Cain to confess his sin. He, he goes to Cain, and the Lord said to him, 
Where is Abel, your brother? He specifically goes out of his way to ask Cain, Where is your brother? What has happened to him? Where is he? I'm looking for him. Cain, remember how different this is from Adam. This is what I'm talking about. How much more magnified sin is. What did Adam do when the Lord said, Where are you? Adam confessed. Now, it went off the rails at the end, right? He starts blaming Eve. Eve starts blaming the serpent. All of that stuff happens. But he starts out admitting what he did. He confesses what he did. He says, I ate of the fruit. She gave me and I ate of the fruit. He admits. And he tells the Lord everything that happens about hiding and being afraid and being naked. Adam confesses. Already sin has taken root deeply in the human heart because Cain doesn't confess his sin. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Keeper there is the word shomer. It's, a, it's an interesting word, word because it means to, to keep or to guard. could be, am I my brother's guard? Am, am I his keeper? What's most interesting is this is how callous Cain is. It could almost be taken as a joke because what Shomer is often used as is the term of someone who guards sheep. Someone who is a shepherd. He could be saying, ironically, because he just killed his brother, the shepherd. Am I my brother's shepherd? The callousness of Cain on display. Is it my job to watch wherever he goes? Cain knows he just killed him. And here the Lord admits he already knew what had happened. Right? Verse 10. He said, this is the Lord speaking, What have you done? Again, this is reflecting Genesis 3. Who was... Who was asked, what have you done? Cain's mother, Eve. The Lord said that to her as well. What have you done? And here to Cain, what have you done? Don't you know the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground? The imagery of that is that the Lord had already heard Abel's voice, right? He had already heard the voice of the blood. He knew what Cain did. He came to invite confession. And when Cain completely denies confessing to the Lord, he says, I heard his voice. His blood cries out to me from the ground. And listen to how quickly this has escalated. The Lord says, now you, Cain, are cursed from the ground. What did God not say to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3? He cursed the serpent, but he never curses Adam and he never curses Eve. But he does curse the ground. He curses the serpent and he curses the ground, but he never curses humanity. Cain, what he does is so significant it is so severe, it is so despicable 
that Cain is cursed. He himself is cursed. Don't you know now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. You killed your brother, and the earth drank his blood, and now it will offer you nothing. It will offer you nothing. Because you spilt his blood on the land, the land will not offer you its strength any longer. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. What was Cain again? Cain was a tiller of the earth. He was a farmer. The Lord says, you are cursed from the very thing you've given your life to. No longer will you be able to plant crops and expect them to grow. He's already said the ground is cursed, right? In Genesis 3, he said the ground was cursed. What would it take for humans to make produce? Hard labor. That's what he told Adam. He said, it's going to take the sweat of your brow. It's going to take hard labor and toil to get produce to grow up. But it will happen. It will happen. It'll take hard work. It will not be a joy to you anymore. It will be sweaty and hard. But it will still do what you need it to do. Cain's is the next level. It's not going to be hard for you, Cain, to produce the fruits of the earth. It's going to be impossible for you because you are cursed from the ground. What you have been your life as a tiller of the soil, no longer will the earth offer you that. No, you're going to wander around, a vagrant and a wanderer. You're just going to have to live your life wandering from place to place. What's Cain do? Does Cain accept that? Does he say, you're right, Lord. What I did was awful. What I did was terrible. No, again, we see evidence of how deep sin has sunk into the human heart. Because Cain does not offer a single word of repentance. What is Cain concerned about? His punishment. He's concerned about his punishment and what will happen to him. He has not uttered a single word about the awfulness of what transpired to his brother. The awfulness of what he did to him. And he doesn't offer a single sorry to his parents or a sorry to the Lord or any ounce of any indication that he is regretful or remorseful of what he's done. He says, Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. I wonder what Abel thought of that. I wonder if Cain could really complain in light of the fact that Abel's life, like a mist, had barely begun and ceased to be. My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground. In your face, from your face, I will be hidden. Hidden. 
and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain's concerned about vengeance on his head for killing another person. Whatever's going on here, Cain is being driven further from the presence of the Lord. Again, this is language we recognize from Genesis 3. Who was driven in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve. They were driven out of the garden. They're out of the garden. They're in the land. It says Cain's even driven from the land. He's driven from this cultivated area. He's cast even further out from the presence and he says, what? I, I've been speaking to you. I've been seeing you. I've been in your community, God. And now I'm going to be hidden from your face. The presence is even further lost here in Genesis 4. Whatever is going on here, Cain is driven further from the land and he's driven further from the presence of God. Everything that Cain knew about life, everything that really matters to humanity is going to be taken from Cain. He won't be a part of his family anymore. He won't be a part of his community anymore. And he won't even be present with his God. Cain will be driven out. But the Lord offers him mercy. Even in that, even in Cain's selfishness, where he's not concerned about his brother at all and only concerned with himself, the Lord still offers mercy. Verse 15, so the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. Seven, as if you know uh, biblical numbers, seven is the number of completeness or perfection, right? It's not saying that somehow like they're going to kill that person seven times more than than Cain killed Abel or something. The point is that it will be a complete justice, complete divine justice on the person who kills Cain. No, if someone kills you, Cain, vengeance will be taken on them sevenfold to the full weight of divine retribution if you are killed. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Again, think Genesis 3. What is this? The mark of Cain, the sign of Cain. It's just like the clothes, right? The Lord clothed Adam and Eve at the end of that passage. And here the Lord gives a sign for Cain so that Cain will be protected from those who want to kill him. They will know not to kill him. We don't know what that mark is. There's no indication anywhere what it is. A tattoo, a mark on his skin, a hairstyle. I mean, there's all kinds of different things it could be. It's never said. But what we know is that just like the clothes in Genesis 3, it serves double purposes. It's a sign of mercy. Cain will be protected from being killed. Right? Just like the clothes in Genesis 3, they were a protection for Adam and Eve from their shame. But again, it's also a reminder of their sin. Adam and Eve wearing the clothes will always remember, I once wasn't like this. I wasn't full of shame. 
and Cain here too. That mark, whatever that mark is. Yeah, it's telling people not to kill him, but every time he sees it, it's a reminder to him of the fact that he killed his brother. Of what cost him everything he loved. Of what cost him everything he had. That mark is both a reminder of his sin and a testimony of God's grace. I don't know if any of you have any of those in your life, but I think I do. Things that I can point to that are a sign of God's grace and remind me of the mistakes I've made. But what Cain did was awful. It was serious. It was weighty. And so verse 16 that we end on tonight says this, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, which is east of Eden. If you remember, they were already east of Eden. They went out east of Eden. And Cain, he sent out even further east, away from the presence of the Lord. And he settled in the land of Nod. Nod is Hebrew for wandering. He settled in the land of wandering. Why? Because he was a wanderer, just like the Lord said. He had nothing to do but be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So he went and settled in the land of wandering. It's a tragic story. And it's going to lead us up to where we're going. In Genesis 6, when the story gets as dark as it as it ever does. <laughs> and the Lord responds with how remorseful he is that he even made humanity. Cain is edging us towards that reality in Genesis 4. Showing the darkness that has taken hold of the human heart. Like I said, I don't think they could think of something to more magnify how completely sin has taken hold of humanity. From Adam and Eve... To Cain. It's tragic. It's tragic. Next week we'll talk about the genealogies. The genealogies of of Genesis 4 and 5. The second half of this chapter is the story of Cain's line. And what happens to the people who descend from Cain. Who are they? And then in chapter 5 it's going to talk about this, this new baby. Seth and what his line is like. And we'll go through those the rest of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 next week as we talk about genealogies and what that means and what it, it's talking about in the book of Genesis. But this passage about who Cain is is going to show us what his line is like. Right At this point in the story, as far as we know, there's four people on the face of the earth. Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. And one of them's gone. They just got murdered. Three people. And Cain's going to go out in the land of wandering. And the rest of this chapter is going to tell us that this event, this event of Cain's life, shows exactly the kind of people his children became. And his children's children and his children's children until they populated and filled the earth with evil to the point that the Lord was ready to destroy humanity 
This is the indicative story. When we read about Cain's line, we should be remembering what kind of man Cain is. Eve was hoping he was the Messiah and he's the murderer. Eve was hoping he was the serpent crusher and he's the one who gave in to the serpent like no one ever had to that point. It's a dark story. It's a dark story. But this dark story reminds us of what God needed to overcome. It reminds us of how merciful God had to be to bring humanity around to be his people. And that will culminate in all of human history in what we celebrate next week. Easter. The darkness of Adam and Eve transcending to to Cain and all the way down through humanity is why Easter is necessary. Jesus' death, his resurrection, is the only reason that any of us can escape this cycle of darkness and depravity and, and evil. The only reason we can escape it is because the Lord has been merciful through his Son. And so next week, I, I hope you'll all be here and we'll celebrate that reality that we are not like Cain because of Jesus. Because we didn't do it just all on our own, just on ourselves. We figured out a way to conquer this dark impulse in us. No, the Son of God was required to do it. And he had to come and pay that price of our darkness, of Cain's darkness, and pay for sin. And he had to be resurrected to new life so that we could have the Spirit, because we can't do it on our own. That same Holy Spirit that Aaron sung about tonight, we all did, but Aaron led us about tonight, is the Spirit who dwells in us who are Christians, who believe in Jesus and what he's done for us, and help us overcome the darkness of Cain in our own hearts. According to the prophets of the Old Testament, it's because the Spirit actually gives us a new heart. That's the language of Ezekiel. I will put a new spirit in you and give you a new heart, Ezekiel 36. Right? The spirit comes and gives us a new heart so that our heart doesn't look like the heart of Cain, but it actually mirrors the heart of Jesus. I'm looking forward to celebrating with you next week. Next week is the high point of the Christian calendar, Easter the greatest day of any day in human history is Easter. I pray you'll be here next week. We'll be able to continue this conversation as we think about the darkness of what we did, of what Cain did, of what all of us are capable of, the deep evil we're capable of. And yet the Lord's great mercy in bringing that plan to fruition throughout the human 
throughout the human history, right? Not, not just in one generation. This is the Lord unveiling his glorious plan over centuries, over millennia. But he never abandoned us. He never walked away from us. And that's why the scriptures are so precious. That's why I think in, in a unique way the Old Testament is so precious to me because the Lord was never abandoning us. He never walked away. Even in Genesis 6, kind of one of the darkest moments we ever get to with the flood. The Lord preserved humanity through Noah. He preserved them, he saved them, he redeemed them in that moment. He never walked away from us. And the Old Testament is the chronicle of God. God's staying power. Of his holding power, of his unwillingness to let humanity go. That's a beautiful reality. I look forward to celebrate with you next week that that same reality. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your constant grace, your constant mercy. And even now, as the church, those who are filled with your spirit, we still can have that old man tendency, the habits, the patterns of our old life. Would you remove those from us? Would you help us put in the work to stop living in those ways, to stop conforming to the pattern of our old life, of our old heart, and help us be transformed by your Spirit's power into the image of Jesus so that we would look like him and think like him, love like him, act like him. God, would you make us into the people you always intended for us to be before sin infested the human heart. Lord, we pray that your will would be done in our lives and in this church. Thank you for your constant grace and mercy to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.